0: Well, good evening, Hallows Church. My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the pastors here at the Hallows Church, focused uh, primarily over in West Seattle, but it's good to be uh, here with you tonight. I'm I'm excited to open up our Bibles together and explore this passage, Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, that uh, our friend Jordan read just a couple of minutes ago. It's an interesting passage, isn't it? We come to a passage like this, and many are not quite sure at times what to make of it. It's a pretty dramatic scene. It's a pretty bizarre scene in a lot of ways. And there are, in fact, a lot of scenes like this one throughout the the New Testament. We've seen it in the book of Mark thus far. We're going to continue to see it where where Jesus is confronting and casting out demons in people's lives. And many would say that passages like these, they're really just kind of a a product of that time, a reflection of a more uh, primitive understanding of the world in that time and in that place. After all, we've come a long way in 2,000 years, haven't we? We understand certain things now that they did not. They did not understand the biology and the the physiology of disease. They did not understand things like human psychology and mental illness. They did not understand and could not explain many of the things around them that we now do understand and can explain. And so many today look at descriptions like these in the Bible and they're quick to minimize, they're quick to, to conclude that the Bible is simply naive and and misguided in these sorts of areas. And of course, the scope of our knowledge and our understanding, it's indeed uh, far advanced in every possible area of human investigation. But that doesn't necessarily mean, it doesn't necessarily follow from that, that the Bible is therefore mistaken or misguided when it comes to evil. And when it comes to how we're to understand its impact in our lives today. In fact, to say the Bible is overly simplistic or naive when it comes to these sorts of matters actually betrays the the complexity of the picture the Bible presents to us about the world around us. One of the reasons I say that is because of passages like Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 to 24. Listen to what this passage says it says, And he, he being Jesus, went throughout all of Galilee, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. They brought him all the sick those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them all. And so people were bringing to Jesus those afflicted with various diseases and various pains. They were bringing to him epileptics and paralytics, and they were bringing to him as well those who were oppressed by demons. And the text says Jesus healed all of them. He healed all of these different types of people having all of these different types of conditions. The point here is that the Bible and the gospel writers and and Jesus himself, they had some understanding that there were conditions and afflictions that were demonic in nature and in origin and those that were not. In fact, if you're paying close attention to passages like these, the Bible actually differentiates the demonic from the diseased. And it differentiates the demonic and the diseased from from the mentally ill. The word translated in your ESV Bible here is epileptic. It's actually translated as lunatic in the King James Version. And it literally means moonstruck. In Greek, Greek, the word basically means someone characterized by insanity or, or irrational behavior and certain types of seizures as well. And what all of this tells us is that the biblical writers, they, they understood something about the difference between mental illness, physical disease, and demonic oppression. And so when it comes to the human condition and the sources of the, the struggles that we face, the Bible actually differentiates in some, in some pretty clear ways the psychological from the physiological from the Spiritual. And even though it was written at a time when they did not know the things that we know now, I'd submit to you that in in certain respects, the biblical understanding of the world and of the human heart and of the reality of evil is perhaps the the least simplistic, least naive, most multidimensional view of reality that exists. The biblical worldview, it refuses to ever reduce our problems to a single dimension or a single plane by, it has to be, by saying it has to be one thing or another. Instead, what the Bible would suggest is that, is that these various factors and influences, including the physical, including the psychological, and including the spiritual, they're, they're, really, they're really interwoven and, and interlocking in some very powerful ways. And as a result, there's no template for figuring out the, the problems of the world and the problems of of the human heart because you can't reduce these things to a single plane these things come together in highly complex and and multi-dimensional ways and there's much to be said on that front and we'll touch a, a bit on it along the way here tonight but but let me just say that from a biblical world view if you don't see the reality and complexity of what the bible says about satan and evil if you don't see that that evil is not only out there but it but it's in here as well if you don't see that it's not only individual, but it's also corporate and, and systemic, it's going to deceive you and defeat you unnecessarily in many areas of your lives, just as it did in dramatic fashion for the man in this passage. In fact, we can glean a number of lessons from this man as we look at his condition and as we look at his circumstance. And this guy's condition and his circumstance, they were pretty troubling. They were pretty disturbing, in fact. We get a pretty clear sense here that this guy was, he was pretty messed up. He seems pretty hopeless in his situation, and he seems pretty helpless to it. We see that this guy had become enslaved under some sort of demonic influence. He had an unclean spirit, it says in, in verse 2 here. It also says he was living among the tombs. Now, these tombs, they would have been uh, subterranean caves that were either naturally formed or man-made in the limestone cliffs along this shoreline where this scene took place. And these tombs would have indeed been used for burying the dead, but they would have also been used as shelter and as dwelling places for the poorest of the poor of that day, for the hopeless and for the helpless and for the homeless. And so this guy, he was living literally among the dead, he was living among the desperate, and he was living among the destitute. And if this was his situation, it's clear he was not part of mainstream society at this point. He was withdrawn, he was isolated, he was marginalized in every way. And we're not told what started this guy down this path, but it was something, right? It's always something. And verse 3 gives us what should be a pretty sobering, description for us and a pretty serious caution to us. It says no one could bind him anymore. No one could reach this guy. No one could get through to him anymore. And so one of the things we see about evil here and the way it uh, works in our lives is that it starts somewhere and it often starts slow and it works its way gradually into our lives. Evil often begins slowly and it works gradually. It rarely presents itself in its true colors. It almost never comes at you frontally. It's subtle and it's gradual. It sneaks up on its victims deceptively, doesn't it? And this is why Thomas Brooks, uh, he would say this. He would say Satan's first device to draw the soul into sin is to present the bait and to hide the hook, to present the golden cup and to hide the poison to present the sweet, the pleasure and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin and to hide from the soul the wrath and the misery that will certainly follow. Now we don't know what set this guy off, it set his life off in the direction that it took here, but we do see where it led him. And we're given the sense here that there was a progression that took place. He wasn't always like this. No one could get through to this guy anymore. And another thing we see here is that evil is divisive. Evil always seeks to divide. This guy had been divided in various ways. He, he had been divided from his friends and family. He had been divided and isolated from society as a whole. And what's most striking is that the evil in this guy's life, it was also dividing him. It was dividing his sense of self and his sense of identity. In verse 9, Jesus says, what is your name? And it says, uh, he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And know we're, go- we're going to come back to this later, but a Legion is a very large number. It's a military designation referring to a very large army. And what's interesting is, is if you follow this exchange here in this passage, if you, if you look at what this guy says and, and how he says it, you see that at times he's referring to himself in a singular pronoun, And at other times, he's referring to himself with a a plural pronoun. And so there's a real sense of confusion and chaos within this man that we see in this exchange. It seems that the evil at work in this guy's life, it was dividing him, it was splitting him, and it was confusing and, and deceiving him. In fact, it seems that the man had become so intertwined with the demonic deception that was controlling him that it was not clear who was doing the talking Or who was calling the shots? And I do know this scene has a pretty, it's a pretty extreme example to be sure. It's a pretty sensational example. But friends, the truth of the matter is there are are many voices that are vying for our attention and for our allegiance. In September 2007, a popular radio program aired an episode that was entitled The Devil Inside of Me. The show asked various people if they had ever felt like they were under the spell of an inner voice that held them bondage to unwanted thoughts. And according to the show's host, and I quote, it was like people had been waiting all their lives for somebody to ask them this question. And there were some pretty fascinating answers to this question. One man said, I certainly know the voice that you're talking about. One woman said, it's totally out of control, it's got this life of its own and I can't tame it anymore. Another woman said, I actually have a name for the voice, I call it Stan. Stan is the guy who tells me to have the extra glass of wine. Stan is the guy who tells me to smoke. Another man says, I remember somehow realizing just how finely calibrated the voice was to every nuance and every part of my feelings. Another woman who had just got engaged, she said, uh, she said the voice had been saying this, you, uh, you'd better try your hardest to make sure he doesn't take the ring away because he's going to find out the truth about you and who you really are. And so you'd better distract him with a really thin body. Now at the end of the episode, the host asked one of the women, do you feel like the voice is winning? And her reply was this, she said, right now, Yes. I think I'm in some serious trouble, to be honest with you. This was a radio program known as This American Life, hosted by a professing atheist that aired on national public radio. And without trying to or wanting to, I would suggest to you that this episode is affirming for us a surprisingly uh, biblical and a surprisingly accurate view of some of the ways that sin and evil seek to assault us in our lives. If we're going to be honest here, you know the voice. You're familiar with the voice. You've heard the lies. You've heard the accusation. You've heard the condemnation. The Apostle John in his gospel in chapter 8, verse 44, would say that Satan does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a a liar and the father of lies. He lies, he tempts, He accuses, he manipulates, he distracts, he intimidates. He does whatever it takes to keep people who don't know Jesus from ever meeting Jesus. And he does whatever it takes to get people who follow Jesus to shift their trust and their focus to anything other than Jesus. Just like he did with the man in the passage, he wants to divide your attention, he wants to divide your loyalties and your motives. He wants to divide your life. Now, another interesting thing we see here in this passage is the way in which evil gives at the same time it takes. It empowers at the very same time that it ensnares and enslaves. This guy is divided and deceived as he was. He had great power. He was empowered by the evil that had gained access to his life. He had great strength, uh, superhuman strength, in fact, but that empowerment, it came at a high cost. Look at how he was living, look at at where he was living, and look at what he was doing. Verse 5 says that night and day he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. He was not only helpless to the evil that overtook him, he had become hopeless about ever finding a way out and he would cry out continually, and he would cut himself. He had great strength and power on the one hand, but the the stronger he got, the, the weaker he got. The stronger he got, the more power that he gained, the more he loathed and despised himself. Evil was giving him something, but it was taking something away, too. He was growing in power, but at the same time, he was losing himself. He was losing what mattered most. Because you see, the more power evil gives to you, the more it takes away from you, and with this enemy, he will empower you in areas that, that ultimately do not matter, and he'll take away from you in areas that, that ultimately do. You want that powerful career, you, you want that perfect relationship or family, you want that perfect body, you want that status or that reputation, you can, you can have that, you can have those things. Just make it the most important thing to you. Put everything into it. Look to it for your value and for your worth. Allow it to define you. And you can have those sorts of things. And the truth is, we enter into agreements like these more often than we think without even realizing it. And then as we give ourselves to these things that we Value most of our and all in our lives, we're slowly and subtly seized and, and controlled by them. Little by little, slowly and subtly, even as you achieve the very things that you thought would make everything right in your life, you, you find it's never quite enough. You can never quite get there. Even though you achieve exactly what you thought you wanted and needed most of all uh, in your life, you find that underneath you're still unsettled. There's an undercurrent of anxiety and fear and insecurity when your trust and your faith are are misplaced. If Christ is not the most important thing that you're seeking after in your life, you're, you're dealing with the devil in one way or another. And he will spin out a whole new set of false definitions of success and failure, of happiness and sadness in your life if you allow him to do so. And through it all, he will lead you down a path that will eventually have you crying out and cutting yourself, emotionally speaking, wondering why you still feel the way that you feel even though you reach that goal and even though you accomplish that dream. Evil will give to you, but never as much as it takes away from you. And so that's the man in this passage, and it's pretty disturbing, it's pretty troubling until you turn the corner here and move into verses 6 to 14 where this guy comes face to face with a new reality, with a, a new master who's about to change everything. And there's a very real sense in which what we're going to see happen in this scene reveals to us one of the main reasons Jesus came in the first place. We're going to see something about his purpose in stepping into this world in us, uh, for us and with us. And the purpose I'm talking about is is liberation. The purpose of Jesus, you see, is freedom and liberation from all that binds and oppresses us. And Jesus himself, he would would make this purpose quite clear from the very beginning. In the very first sermon that he ever preached, actually, that's recorded in the Bible. In Luke chapter 4, we see that a little while after Jesus started his his public ministry, he returned to his hometown and he was invited into the synagogue to, to teach because they wanted to hear from him. And Jesus did something in the synagogue that day that shocked everyone who had come out to hear him. We're told he stood up in the synagogue and he read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Specifically, he read from Isaiah chapter 61. And here's what he said as recorded in Luke chapter 4. "'The Spirit of the Lord is upon me "'because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor.'" He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then right after that, it says that Jesus rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And it says all the eyes on the synagogue in the synagogue were fixed on him. And all the eyes were fixed on him because they were waiting for him to explain the text. They were waiting for him to give his, to give his sermon because that's how it usually worked. But all Jesus said was this. He said, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, most of the people in attendance, they would have been familiar with this passage that he just read. They would have known it was talking about the promised Savior, the the coming Messiah who God promised he would send to, to put everything right in this very broken world. But what's fascinating is Jesus doesn't really give them a sermon at all, right? He doesn't explain what Isaiah chapter 61 meant. All he does is he says, today this scripture, it's fulfilled in your hearing, And so he doesn't really give them a sermon. He basically basically says, I am the sermon. My life is going to be the sermon. And that's a pretty staggering claim, right? That's a pretty audacious claim. And he received a very mixed response here and elsewhere whenever he would start talking in this way. Many would be excited and hopeful when Jesus began making these claims, but others would be offended But most all of them, regardless of which camp they were in, they they understood Isaiah's prophecy in a very different way than Jesus would eventually make clear that it was supposed to be understood. Most thought if Jesus really is the Messiah, then surely this uh, must mean that he had come for them, right? He's come to liberate them from the Romans, because the Romans were the enemy after all, right? The Romans were evil. The Jewish people were saying, we're the captives, we're the oppressed, And so if this is true, then it must mean he's come to to take down the Romans and to set us free, to, to liberate us, just like the prophecy said. You see, their expectation was that this promised Messiah would come in that type of power and with that type of purpose. But the truth is they were missing the point. Jesus would make clear here and moving forward that his mission was not at all about liberating the Jewish nation from Roman occupation and from Roman oppression. Instead, he would make clear, as would all the writers of the the New Testament, that the rescue and the liberation that the Jews and everyone else needed most of all was not from the Romans at all, and it was not from any other human enemy. Paul would refer to Satan in a variety of ways that would make this clear. He would call him the god of this age in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and the ruler over the darkness of this world in Ephesians chapter 6. He would talk about Satan taking people captive to do his will in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And about Satan blinding the minds of people so they cannot see or understand the things of God in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And you may recall in Mark chapter 3 verse 27, just a a few weeks back, Jesus, he alluded to this mission when he said that he had come to to bind the strong man, the strong man being Satan, and to plunder his house. The Apostle John would make, would make this about as clear as it can get when he would say in 1 John chapter 3, uh, the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You see, the birth and the incarnation of Jesus, they were an act of war. An invasion into, into enemy-held territory with the plan and purpose to bring liberty to the captives and to, to open eyes of the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And that's exactly what we see Jesus doing in this passage and throughout his ministry, going on the uh, offensive against the demonic forces that were, that were binding and, and blinding and oppressing God's people, fulfilling this purpose of liberation and showing his power over the spiritual realm in some, in some incredible ways. We see it, in fact, in this passage that the power of Jesus over Satan and demons is absolute. Remember in verse 9, Jesus uh, says, tell me your name. And the guy says, I am legion, for we are many. And as I mentioned, a legion is a military designation. It was understood back then to be a main division of the of the Roman army that would comprise actually several thousand men, usually between six and eight thousand men, and that's a legion. And so the implication here is that this guy was being controlled not only by uh, not by uh, only one or a few demons, but by an army of, of thousands of demons. And yet, when this man who was controlled and consumed by a legion of uh, demons gets into the presence of Jesus, he's he's down on his knees. Several commentators, in fact, point out the irony and, in fact, also the the comedy of what happens in this scene. Because any time in ancient history or in ancient uh, literature, when people were trying to deal with demons, you see they always called on a higher power. And when this man comes running towards Jesus and, and falls down before him, look at what he says. He says, "'What do you want with me, Jesus?' And then he says, I adjure you by God, which basically means I command you by God. I command you by God, uh, do not torment me. And what's ironic is that those words are actually something like the form of an exorcism. And so whoever was doing the talking here, they were calling on a higher power. They were calling on God. Whoever was doing the talking here was trying to exorcise Jesus. But look at the power here. Jesus deals with 6,000 demons the same way he deals with one. There's virtually no difference. He deals with a legion of demons the same way he dealt with the wind and the the waves last week. He doesn't work up a sweat. He doesn't uh, roll up his sleeves. He doesn't call on a higher power. He he speaks. He says, come out. Jesus doesn't call on a higher power because he doesn't have to because, because he is the higher power. He has power itself. When Jesus comes face to face with a legion of demons, there's absolutely no contest, not even a struggle. And so his power and authority over the spiritual realm, it's it's pretty striking and it's it's entirely absolute. But what does that mean for us today? What does that really do for us today? Because if we're going to be honest, at times... It sure feels like evil has the, the upper hand in our world. At times it seems like evil is wreaking all sorts of havoc in the world and in our lives. And so what are we to make of all this? There's a story in 2014 of a chef in southern China who was preparing a rare delicacy for the menu that evening. And the particular dish that he was working on, it included as one of its ingredients, the Indo-Chinese spitting cobra a highly poisonous snake. And so during his preparations, he took this live cobra and he very carefully uh, severed its head and he set it aside. And he proceeded over the course of the next 20 or 30 minutes to, to cut and prep the body of the snake for this dish that he was preparing. And it's around that time that diners in the restaurant would later say they heard loud and frantic screams coming from the kitchen and there was much commotion in the restaurant at that point. And the reason for this is that when the chef went to dispose of the severed snake head, the snake the head clamped down on the hand of this man. Nearly a half hour after the snake head had been cut off, the snake bit this guy and he killed him. You see, even a wounded and defeated enemy in some cases can do much damage. And there's a sense in which the Bible tells us that this is the very type of thing going on in the... In the battle that we face as Christians, the Bible teaches that in an ultimate sense, Satan is a conquered enemy at this point. He's a a defeated foe because at the cross and through the resurrection, we're told in places places like Colossians chapter 2 that Jesus delivered a decisive blow to Satan, but that doesn't mean he's not still thrashing about, doing all that he can to deceive and to distract and to destroy and this is precisely why the New Testament writers would uh, continually remind us that the battle is ongoing and we need to be alert and aware to the schemes and the snares of this defeated but still very dangerous enemy. Another thing we see in this passage is something about the priority of Jesus. We see that the priority of Jesus is internal and not external. And interestingly enough, we see it in this Uh, strange passage, or strange scene here with the pigs. Jesus permits the legion of demons to go into the pigs, and when they do, the the pigs go rushing off the edge of the steep cliff into the sea, where all 2,000 of them evidently drowned. Someone lost a lot of money that day. Those pigs, that many pigs would have represented a lot of wealth. And there's a sense in which Jesus may be showing us here that a A single human life made in the image and likeness of God is more valuable than any amount of money or any amount of wealth. But several commentators suggest that there's also something else going on here. And they would suggest that what Jesus is doing here uh, was symbolic on a different and, and deeper level. You see, the Jews, they saw the Romans as evil. They saw the Romans as unclean animals. And the source of all of their problems, they thought if only they could deal with the Romans, their problems would be solved because the Romans were oppressing them after all. The Romans were controlling them in all sorts of ways. And if only they could drive those wicked Romans back, those unclean Roman pigs back into the Mediterranean Sea from where they came, everything in their lives would be finally put right and restored And this is the very sort of solution most expected from Jesus if he was, in fact, the promised one from God. But Jesus doesn't do that at all, does he? He doesn't show up to drive the legions of Romans back into the sea. He shows up to expose the the true enemy and to drive them back into the sea. He shows up saying the legions, which are the true source of your problems, are not out there. They're not other people, they're not other groups, they're not other nations. In fact, they're spiritual. And they're competing for the attention and for the affections of every human heart. And so by liberating this Gentile man in a Roman-controlled region in the way that Jesus did, he's saying we need to be careful pointing to, to others and thinking that they're the evil and we're the good. They're the problem and their destruction is the solution. He seems to be saying instead that the dividing line between uh, good and evil it isn't out there. It's not us versus them. It's, it's inside each one of us, and it, and it cuts down the middle of every human heart. So let's turn the corner here and let's look at the outcome of all this in verses 15 to 20. Let's talk about the miracle that went down in this guy's life on that day. We see, first of all, that people from all around the area came out to to see what was going on, because word was spreading and people were talking, many of the people in this area, they, they likely either knew this guy or they knew about this guy. They knew he was a lost cause. They knew he was out of control. And when they saw him sit, when, when they saw him there, he was, he was calm. He was docile. He did not seem combative, and he did not seem confused. This man who no one could bind, not even with chains, it says he was now seated with Jesus and he was in his right mind. Just as Jesus calmed the chaos of the storm last week, he calms a a different type of storm this week, he calms the the chaos of this guy's life. He calms the storm and the chaos of demonic lies and oppression that had been deceiving and, and destroying this man Something else we see here is that Jesus covers the exposed. We see that this guy was not only seated and calm, he was, he was clothed as well. The parallel passage to this one in the book of Luke tells us that this guy we've been talking about, he was literally naked as this whole scene played out. But he was naked spiritually, too, without a doubt. He had been exposed and exploited by this enemy. You see, this guy had been stripped of his sense of self. He had been stripped of his uh, sense of identity by this old master. But this Jesus, he clothed him, he covered him, not only physically but spiritually, because that's what Jesus does. In fact, what God, that's what God promised he would do in the very same passage from the book of Isaiah that we talked about earlier. Get this, if you read just a few verses further in Isaiah chapter 61... Just after the passage that Jesus stood up and read that day in the synagogue in Nazareth and, and claimed as his own, you see some other promises from the Lord through the prophet Isaiah about what else this Savior would be coming to do. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And so not only did Jesus deliver this man from the hand of his enemy, he gave him an entirely unexpected and undeserved gift. He, he covered him and he clothed him in a righteousness that was not his own, just as God promised he would do. Friends, this old master, he will... Uh, rip you and strip you this old master will always make you feel naked and exposed this old master will always make you feel anxious and afraid and inadequate but this new master he calms you he renews and restores your mind he he covers you and he clothes you he liberates you from what binds you and he does these very things when you turn to him in faith for the first time And he does these things each and every time you return to him in faith again. And this changes everything for this man. When when Jesus does these things for this man, he's compelled toward a new life. He's compelled toward a new uh, loyalty. He's compelled, in fact, toward a new mission, and and so are we. After Jesus restored this guy and put him in his right mind, all this guy wanted was was to be with Jesus. It says he... He begged Jesus that he might be with him. But look at what Jesus says in verse 19. He says, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. It says, He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. And so what a wonderful picture that is. What a powerful picture that is, right? Right? But the truth is, he did the same for each one of us too, right? He set us free from the same enemy. He opened our eyes to the same truth. This guy's experience was indeed pretty sensational, but but qualitatively, Jesus did exactly the same thing for each and every one of us who follows him. Jesus liberates this guy from the evil in his life. He opens his eyes, and then he says, he says, go and talk about it. Tell people about what happened. Tell them the truth about me. Tell them how you were captive and now you're free. Tell them how you were blind and now you can see. Go and expose this enemy as well. Expose his treachery and expose his lies. Jesus would later say to the Apostle Paul, as recorded, in, uh, as recorded by Luke in Acts chapter 26, he says, I'm sending you, Paul, to open, open eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Friends, our mission is indeed to talk about truth, to tell the truth about Jesus, to tell others how much the Lord has done for us and and the mercy he has had on us. But our mission is also to expose this enemy and to expose his lies. But we need to do this together, right? It's a corporate effort in every way. One of the warning signs we see with the guy in this passage, in fact, is that the enemy isolated him. He isolated this guy, and then he picked him off, and then he took him down. The apostle Peter would say, be sober-minded, be watchful. He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And that's a pretty powerful image. It reminds me, in fact, of a scene one time on one of those uh, television programs on the animal planet. In this one particular program, there were five or six lions, and they were watching a large herd of buffalo from uh, off in the distance. They were watching and they were waiting. They were patiently waiting and plotting. And finally, one buffalo wasn't paying attention, and he got careless and he, and he strayed from the herd. And that's precisely when these lions made their move. And, and when they did, the isolated buffalo, he, he took off and tried to get away and tried to return to, to the herd, but he did not get very far. Before he knew what hit him, one lion had grabbed the back leg on one side. Another did the same on the back leg of the other, on the other side. And these two lions just kind of dug in and hung on until this buffalo slowed to a stop. And then uh, one lion jumped on his back, another went for his stomach, and they just began to tear into this animal. It was a gruesome scene that was difficult to watch. But do you know what struck me even more than the attack itself? There were probably more than 100 buffalo standing there watching this happen. Now, I don't know how smart buffalo are, but... But I'll tell you this: if if that herd had decided they weren't going to let this happen, and, and together they ran full speed in the direction of this attack, these, these lions would have had no choice but to abandon their efforts that day. The lions never would have made a meal of that lone buffalo if the herd had stuck together and protected one another. The one that got taken down was not even that far from the pack. That he drifted and strayed just far enough for the enemy to take notice and for the enemy to take action. Friends, we have to stick together on this. No one is immune. The battle is real. And the reality of this battle actually helps us to understand, in some ways, why things are the way they are, individually and systemically. And why there do not seem to be strictly human solutions to the problems of this world and to the problems in our lives. It helps to explain why even as Christians, or perhaps especially as Christians, many of us battle daily with things like fear and rejection. With things like inferiority and and worthlessness. With things like self-pity and self-loathing or pride and anger and unforgiveness. It helps to explain why at times we seem to be controlled by by addictions to to chemicals and to people and to pleasure. It helps to explain why at times some of us face seemingly insurmountable battles in simply trying to read our Bibles and and pray regularly and and grow spiritually spiritually. Paul says we need to be aware of the enemy's tactics and how he operates. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, don't be outwitted by him. Don't be ignorant of his designs. And the truth is that every single one of those things that I just mentioned, in order for any one of those to take root in your life, requires fundamentally that you believe one lie or another about God, about yourself, or about the world. And so what lies has he been telling you lately? And how are you responding to those? Because he'll take as much ground as you're willing to give him. But in a very real way, for a Christian, he can only get in through a door that's, that's opened from the inside. And I think this is why the consistent answer we're given in the Bible of uh, how to deal with this enemy and how to, how to face this battle is to stand squarely on the truth, to see through the lies, to see through the deception, and to to expose them as what they are by, by knowing the truth, by embracing the truth of who God is and who He says we are, and by knowing what the gospel says about us and what the gospel's done for us. It's simply not possible to expose the lies and deception that this enemy seeks to assault us with without first having the truth dwelling richly in our hearts. And this is why we study the scriptures, right, corporately speaking in this setting each and every week. This is why we open up the scriptures together regularly in our missional communities, exploring God's truths together and exposing together the ways that the enemy is seeking to, to undermine those truths and exposing the ways he may be seeking to divide and distract and deceive us through that. This is also why our smaller, uh, same gender DNA groups, that's why we have those as well. We seek to have a, a safe place where we can be intentionally and lovingly intrusive and accountable in one another's lives in order to put ourselves in a better position to be aware of blind spots and vulnerabilities that this enemy may be seeking to exploit in our lives without us even seeing them. Friends, the bottom line is we we do this together, we need to stick together, we need to stand together, we need to be willing to fight this enemy together, committing ourselves to being in in consistent community, committing ourselves to one another's spiritual health and and vitality, and committing ourselves to the truth and the beauty of this gospel and this Savior who, who rescued and redeemed us, who calmed us and covered us and restored us in our right minds. Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your grace. Jesus, you are powerful. and You are good. Thank you for rescuing us and opening our eyes. Thank you for passages like this that show us about who you are and what you've done and what what you will do. God, would you enable and empower us to resist this enemy together as your people and as your church, seeing through his schemes and his lies by seeking and savoring your truth. Thank you that you calm us, you clothe us, you restore us to our right minds again and again as we humbly turn to you in faith. Give us grace to do that now in Jesus' name. Amen.